Welcome to Dower in Orbit, the practical design leadership podcast. I've always assumed that everyone who's a designer thinks about ethics. It turns out they don't. Andy, ethics in design, does it have a place? I'm not an ethics professor. I'm not a, an ethics expert in, in any stretch of the imagination. I'm probably like most of your listeners who are often tasked with delivering some kind of project, product outcome, and often find myself taking the position of the customer, taking the position of the user. And I think that's natural as, as designers. We tend to see ourselves as user-centered. We tend to try and create products and services which meet some set of like user goals. Often, I think, to our detriment is that we often prioritize the user needs over the business needs. But I think a lot of the time, business decisions are made in an organization um, in a sort of a, a silo in isolation. We need to deliver this change because it delivers this business outcome. It will, you know, we need to auto check the checkbox for sign in so we can send you emails because actually we need to build our email list so we can um, attract more customers, deliver more revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And often these decisions, like I say, are made in isolation. They're made by a business person. They're made by a product manager. They're made by an engineer, a marketer with a very, very set fixed set of goals. Where the rubber meets the road is when they come and give that task to a designer. And the designer says, hold on a second. There's a bunch of problems here. I, as a user, wouldn't like to have this experience myself. Also, there's a, a bunch of new legislation around kind of whether actually auto inviting people and signing them up to a main, mailing list is actually even legal with GDPR and, and a whole variety of other areas. And so, I do think that in a practical sense, ethics in organizations often isn't thought through until the point of implementation, where the manifestation of the, the, the idea starts to ferment in a designer's mind and they start thinking through the, the edge cases. Because actually designers and you know, to, to quite some extent engineers, when they're given a problem, they're often just given the best case scenario. And a lot of designers, you need to think about the edge cases. How does this work? How do people understand it? Which need are these meeting and which are they not? And so I see a lot of tension in designers when they're pushing back against features that have been implemented because they tend to be the ones that find themselves quite often fighting the ethical position. Justin. Yeah, the, the gears were turning um, in a couple different capacities there. One, Andy, you and I have spoken about this in the past, you know, when you were at clear left about even taking on clients that align ethically to your, your values or your business values. And I you know, respected years ago, you saying that you took a hard line against the clients you even want to work with. And, and a lot of the businesses or agencies or design shops, in-house, out-of-house I've worked at along the way will have their stated code of ethics or their values printed on the cafeteria wall. But there's always that client or two where it's like, you know, oh, it's, I don't know, some examples. Oh, it's tobacco, but man, the size of this contract or, oh, it's, you know, something else, some other vice. Oh, but the size of this work is really, so I feel like there's always those, not always, but there's very often work that kind of seeps through the cracks because the dollar signs are big. So, I, you know, I've respected how you've treated that along the way. I really appreciate you said there about how you've uh, you've appreciated our ethical stance. I'm not sure it's necessarily benefited us economically. You know, a lot of companies I see who are working, you know, doing projects in the gaming industry, in 
military in all these kind of you know places often have grown faster have been more economically successful and have lasted the, the test of time so i think while it's it's easy to take an ethical stand from a kind of theoretical perspective, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the smartest kind of business decision that we've ever made as an agency. In terms of that, we've been quite lucky. I mean, I think when I was running Clear Left, we had always decided we want to be a relatively small boutique agency. And that allowed us a, you know, because of our kind of philosophy, that gave us a, an allowance to turn work down. But also, we were really lucky. We were we were operating at our peak in a growth market, which meant that we had three or four jobs come to us and we would only be able to do one or two. So we could sort of somewhat, we couldn't pick and choose the work we did, but we could look at the spread of work we had and have the ability to turn things down. That's great in a growth market. Now, if the choice was we let some of our team go, if the choice was we fire people and they can't pay their mortgage and the way that we keep the company going and the way we keep everyone kind of alive and engaged is to possibly have to take a a project that we might feel morally challenged about that would be a whole different conversation because again you're 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 judging the morals of working with a a bank or a, a cigarette company which is kind of a, a slightly divorced moral decision from the morals of going, okay, well, if the outcome of this is we need to let five of our team members go, that's an immediate decision. And so I don't think morals are kind of happening in a vacuum. And I think morals often, your ability to take a moral stance is directly tied with the ele- level of power and the level of comfort and the level of privilege you have. I think I think taking an ethical stance is often a very privileged position. I see a lot of people get on stage and and share how they've made those decisions. But if you've got large amounts of money in the bank, if you haven't got a mortgage, if you're comfortable in the world, you can do that. If you're really struggling, I think it's much, much harder to to take that ethical stance. And I think it's also a real shame that like often we, you know, people who are in a privileged position might look down to those who decide to work for that gaming company or that alcohol company that they agree with because they've had to had to decide that. You know, I have a lot of friends of mine who you know, work in Meta and and I kind of question some of their decisions because I probably wouldn't work in Meta, but they've got three or four kids to look after. They've got healthcare bills to pay. They've got education to pay. And it's like, well, you've made a decision and I, I completely understand and respect that. And I'm not going to judge you for it. It's just not the decision I would have made. So how does one manage these questions, who to work with? Is it right to ask everyone in the company to, is, is, it, a, is it a topic to vote on? Is it someone thing to actually have the principles in place, but then acknowledge that one steps away from the principles when needed? Oh, that's a really, really tough question. I think it can be very, very challenging if you democratize the whole process. I think, democ- I think democracy is great. I think in a decision-making context, I think you need to probably vote on the bigger things. But if you're voting on making everyday day-to-day decisions, it can slow everything down. Also, you've got to decide what kind of method you use. If half of the comp- if, if 51% of the company says, I'm happy working with an arms manufacturer and 49% doesn't, does that mean you go ahead? Democratically, you have a mandate. But actually, what about the feelings of the 49% of people? Like if you go ahead and you you work on this work, you still might upset a lot of people. So I think I think a democratic vote isn't necessarily the answer. I think in a small company, a lot of your, your moral center, first of all, comes from the beliefs of the founders. A lot of the reason that people join your company, whether it's an agency or whether it's a small startup, is because they believe what the founder says. And you 
to some extent are putting some of your own trust and faith into into them making good decisions on your behalf. Like joining any company is about kind of giving up some agency in the hope that the people live up to your expectations. And so I think as an employee, if you see something you're not happy with, I think it's a good idea to flag it up. I think people might not know that you have ethical you know, issues with working with a particular company or not. But also, I think just because you don't feel comfortable working with something doesn't necessarily mean that the the company has to listen to every view and everybody gets a veto. So I think it's a complicated, messy discussion dialogue in which you, through that conversation and through your positioning and the economic environment, you come up with a decision that is the the best place decision in the time. I think it's really, really tough to kind of set a, a set of, I mean, saying that, I think you can have a set of guidelines. I mean, at Clearleft, we were like, we will not work with, with arms industry, we will not work with the military. We turned down work with the police force because we felt that they were not setting the standards in the UK in terms of moral practice that, that we felt comfortable with. And for us, it was less, it was more around kind of like, would the people on the team want to work with this company? If we've got a whole bunch of Team members are like, I don't really want to work with this, with this, with institution. I don't feel that we have the right to force people to do stuff that makes them feel uncomfortable. But there are some instances where if some people in the team didn't want to work on it and others do, did, we might take the job. But if there was a general census that like, we all feel a bit kind of icky about this, then we would turn the work down. So it's, there's a spectrum and there's no one size fits all answer, I'm afraid. seems like there's uh, the discussion is important. If this is brought to the fore, then we can talk about it. Then we can make the decision. Is this also, and I know, Justin, you've, you've talked about this quite a lot. Is this a role then for design leaders to make sure that that discussion happens when it is important? Yeah. I mean, this is a nice segue into something I was planning on, on pivoting to. I, you know, Andy made a point about design leaders being on stage and saying one thing that sounds great in tweet form, but to go back and actually apply it into a business setting or a design setting where there's nuance and there might not be the cultural support to raise ethical considerations. I think those are the, those are the gray areas that are complex. And uh, you know, some of it is incumbent upon design leaders to set and, and lead and champion the culture to be able to raise those considerations, one, to have those considerations heard two, and to be able to have them actually baked into the way the business operates, three, I mean, that's that's a non-trivial feat. Is that environment even there to operate in that capacity? I, I think one of the other disconnects, I mean, over the years, founders of tech companies have done a really good job of hiring incredibly well-meaning kind of ethical designers, engineers, you know, kind of employees with this idea of a mission. We have a mission. We're going to go and change the world. We're going to make things better. So a lot of people come and join that journey. So I think if you are going to set the company up as though you are having some big impact in the world, you also have to start accepting the consequences, which I think a lot of tech companies haven't done. I think a lot of tech companies have used the emotional triggers that go behind making an impact. But then when people start questioning that impact, they, they, they sort of brush it under the, the carpet, go, actually, oh, well, we didn't really mean that. Like, you know, you've just hired, you've got to come and deliver your AKRs. You know, there are lots of instances of people in the US particularly being fired when they start making trouble. And I do wonder, I mean, again, I, th- this is just kind of a hypothesis that I haven't really put any thought in. But today we've got people from three different jurisdictions. We've got an American, we've got a Scandinavian, we've got a Brit. And I think the Brits almost kind of often culturally sit halfway between America and and the Nordic region, 
although to be honest, I really wish our country and our politics was slightly more on the Nordic side of things and the, the American side of things, but not wanting this to be political. But you have to have the power in an organization to stand up and push back against a practice that you think is unethical. If you are in a jurisdiction where you have no health care, and if the risk of being pushed out of the company means that you have no safety net for your family, if you live in a jurisdiction where you might find yourself unemployed because you've got an at-will hiring and you could be fired with no explanation or recourse, you create a culture where it's much less likely that people will, will show truth to power. Because if you do that, the ability for you to be kicked out is high and the ramifications are much higher. Whereas if you find yourself in a, in a Scandinavian environment, let's say, where there's a safety net, that safety net allows you to be more of a whistleblower if you need to, allows you also, there's security in employment law, which means that you can push back and you're not immediately going to be let go because you're a troublemaker. Mm. So I do think that there are structural differences around the world that mean that different countries and different companies in those countries find it easier or harder to have those conversations, which I think is fascinating. I think it's interesting that, you know, there's there are, you know, very uh, plain, clear levels of misalignment, like the example you just said, Andy, like we can't talk about politics. People are like, that doesn't align to my values. I'm out of here. I keep coming back to there's and often these circumstances, there's a gray area, like there's there's levels of disconnect, there's levels of misalignment. And I think going in as wide eyed and uh, knowledgeable as possible about what you might be getting into as a job seeker is obviously important. And then as a design leader to make sure that being in front of uh, job postings and what is put on your website that is as clear as day about what you represent in, in practice and in process. So it's, it's actions over words. I think that's absolutely imperative these days to make sure the disconnect is as minimized as humanly possible. Or the very least, like if you join a company, you need to have a, an understanding and awareness of, of what expected behavior is and what is and isn't off the table. You know, there is a, there's a very famous Chicago based agency turned product company who a year or so ago caused outrage because they made a kind of a dictate saying that like we will not have any conversation regarding politics you're here to work you're here to focus on the product if you focus on the product that's great but if you want to talk about politics you're out and a large number of the the team i can't remember what the actual figure was but it felt like it was 30 or 40 percent said actually this does not feel like a a company environment that I feel comfortable working in and supporting anymore. Because if I want to work in a company, I don't just want to feel that I, I feel strongly about the product, but I want to feel that the culture that I'm representing out there when I'm hiring, when I'm, I'm promoting the business maps my, my needs. And I can kind of understand that if when we think about kind of politics, we're talking party politics, but often when people use politics, they are using it as a, a code for ethics. You know, because a lot of the time people aren't having conversations around, are you voting Democrat or Republican? Are you voting conservative or, or Labour? People are talking about how should we treat this class of people? Should we treat them with respect or not respect? Do we want to have conversations on our platform that make some people feel safe or unsafe? You know, all these kind of questions, they might play into some of the tropes and the themes that politicians like to pull on. But these are often ethical questions. And I think it's really easy for large organizations, particularly kind of, you know, bird-based communication platforms who say, this is no place for politics. 
the politics and the ethics are so tightly aligned, I think it's impossible to, to move forward without these conversations and discussions. And so I think it's often a kind of a, a chilling effect. It's If you have a lot of people asking a lot of difficult questions, it's easy just to, to say, no politics of this company. If you don't like it, clear out, um, which you know many people have done and will continue to do. That's great, Andy. A couple, a couple of themes I extracted from that were awareness and environment. And uh, I think to a, a previous role I had within a very large organization, and I was new in the role, maybe a month in. My phone rang one day and I picked it up and it was a senior product person. And I got a request from a client to put something in our, in our product. And I remember saying aloud in the phone, this feels like an ethical punch in the kidneys. After that, my team kind of said, you know, we appreciate, you know, you speaking up and, and flagging this. And this, this isn't me patting myself on the back. This is more my naivete about the culture that I had stepped into, that it was not something that you can like, you know, pump the brakes or, or flag. Jan, I'm going to kick this to you. What, what are some things that we can do as design leaders to encourage dialogue and about uh, ethics and ethical based decisions and design? Not shut up about it, I think is number one. It is a topic that engages people because it is important. We base so many life decisions on our ethics and our morals and how we feel about things. And there is no reason why that shouldn't be able to exist in a work setting. Being able to make informed and considered decisions. And that only happens if we actively encourage that dialogue, if we make it a part of a role, make it people part of people's roles to actually have these discussions. And it doesn't always have to be, do we work with an arms manufacturer, yes or no? It can be much smaller topics. It can be much smaller decisions, but that also helps. It encourages, it makes us used to questioning and having a very, very open dialogue about it. Ethics is about often balancing a whole bunch of different needs in a way that doesn't adversely affect any one of them. Um, and that's a difficult balance to walk. And I think a lot of organizations, because they're commercial organizations, are quite happy to adversely affect one or two groups of people if it positively affects their bottom line. And so I th I'm really, really glad to see a lot of the conversations we're having now with people saying like, actually, that doesn't feel comfortable. In terms of the power thing, I think what's happening in the UX space at the moment is really, really interesting. 10, 20, 30 years ago, a lot of my colleagues were advocating for accessibility. And project managers and business owners are like, we don't need to do that. That's expensive. And then the Disability Discriminations Commission have put legislation in place. So now it's not just a moral conversation. It becomes a legal compliance conversation. As soon as something becomes a legal compliance conversation, you don't just say, I believe we should support people with various accessibility needs. It's we have a legal necessity to support these needs. And then it becomes a compliance conversation. And the same is happening at the moment with dark patterns. This term dark patterns that was coined by my, my, my friend and colleague, Harry Brignall, originally was kind of a thing. It was a joke. Well, not really a joke, but it was a, a wiki, a collection of all these kind of potentially unethical or kind of gray area kind of interaction patterns. For many, many years, people, designers would go and say to marketers, go to product managers, we shouldn't do this because it's a dark pattern. Just the act of calling something a dark pattern means that it's now no longer my ethical belief, there's some kind of community agreement that this is wrong. And so just being able to point at a thing and saying, this has been flagged up as a dark pattern, we shouldn't do it, had given those designers a little bit of power, because it's not about me, it's about this thing, this object. And then what we're now seeing is governmental institutions around the world, local and national, pointing at some of these dark patterns and saying, this is illegal. I believe 
that there are a number of areas in the US, I think California might be one, where it's now illegal to make it super easy for people to sign up for a, for a, a paid subscription, but then force people to phone up to cancel in a poorly peopled phone line where you can never get through, you try three or four times and then you give up. So we are now starting to see these moral questions being taken out of the hands of the humble designer that often doesn't have the power in the the hierarchy of an organization and they are becoming governance and legal things and so i think this is the only way as an institution and industry we can take a more ethical stance is by codifying these these issues that we see in statute in 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 law so that we can now point to people and say hey look you can't just automatically sign somebody in for your newsletter that's against gdpr and I think over the next three or four or five years, we're going to see many, many more instances of dark patterns becoming legislated against. That was a great way to wrap it up. Andy, thank you very much. It was my pleasure.